Open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. And uh, while you turn there, I'll tell you a little bit about the trip. I hope you'll come back tonight. I want to show you pictures and show you some videos and really fill you in on what happened. I flew to uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina last Friday and then drove about five hours to Rosario. It was about 24 hours of travel and then 24 hours home and got home yesterday afternoon. And uh, it was just a tremendous trip. I spoke, I think I ended up speaking 22 times while I was down there, and I spoke on re- Reformed theology, helping them to understand some theological controversies that are going on. And then I taught on discipleship. And so it was theoretical and very practical, and it ended up just, we had a, a tremendous time. Our missionaries, the Thorntons, Steve has had a horrible infection of some kind. They never did figure out what it was, and, uh, but his fever broke on Thursday evening, and I got a text from him this morning that he was three nights without a fever, and they think he might have gotten through it. He's been in and out of the hospital. He's lost almost 30 pounds. Wait until you see the pictures of him. He's a thin man anyway, and just very weak. But it looks like God's brought him through it. They don't have any idea. They ran all kinds of tests. They don't know what was wrong. Um, so, but he has, it, it appears that he's come through it. We just want to make sure it doesn't come back, whatever it is. So then, uh, the Thornton's daughter, Monica is married to David Hughes and, uh, David pastors in San Martin. So that's an 18 hour drive from Rosario, 18 hours South. And, um, we support them. They only have a few churches supporting them and, So to give you an example of an understanding of the expense, in the other parts of the country, they were, these men were buying land to build a church building on. They'll build a church building and enough room for a little house for the preacher. And you could buy that land for $1,500 for that. It's $85,000 for that same piece of land in San Martin, which 85,000, that sounds doable until you find out that David and Monica are living on $600 a month. And I asked them how they're doing. And he's just talking about how he likes to fish. And what they'll do is they'll, be, they'll get to the place where there's no food and he'll just go out and try and fish so that they can have something to eat while they're trying to do ministry. Um, Monica has diabetes and she has to have insulin and, and she is also a, an epileptic. And now her medication, they're having trouble with that. They're trying to get that balanced out. And they keep going. They just keep serving. David has had thyroid cancer. And uh, they just found out that he does have a spot that's back on his thyroid. They're trying to decide whether to remove it or not because it's very small. And so those are some things that they're dealing with. Uh, But in the middle of that, they just keep serving God. He's plugging away in this community where it's going to take years to reach people. Um, so San Martin is in the mountains. It's in Patagonia. I know that you all have heard of Patagonia. And they, that's where a lot of the Germans went after World War II. So across the street from him, he has an old Nazi that lives across the street from him. Heinrich Himmler's either granddaughter or great-granddaughter lives across the street from him. And so they have the combination of the Germans, the Argentine people, And then there are a group of Indian people, and I can't remember the name of that group. I'll get it before tonight. And it's all different types of people, and you administer to them in completely different ways. And so that's the ministry that uh, David and Monica have. And uh, we need to raise their support. Don't you think we need to increase what they receive? So pray about what you can do on that. 
I'd like to see them get another three or $400 a month of support, but we don't have that in our missions budget. The only way we have anything like that is if people give. And they need clothes, they need equipment and things, that type of thing. So I want us to try and take an offering and send them several thousand dollars to help with things. So just be in prayer about what you can give toward uh, what they're doing. Um, there are so many things. Wouldn't it be nice just to mail them clothes? You can't. Whatever the value is, the tariff on that is half. So Hernan, the pastor, the, the young man that Brother Thornton is training to take over his work there, because that's the goal, is for an American pastor to turn it over to an Argentine pastor so that the work continues as an Argentine ministry, not an American ministry. And, uh, well, Hernan, his phone, it, it's this old phone that's all cracked and broken. Well, I wanted to ship him an iPhone that I have because I got a newer one, and it would, they, he'd have to pay $500 to get that through customs. So we need to send Aaron some money. I gave him some, but I found out it's not enough. We need to send him some money to be able to get a phone so that he can minister to the people down there. It, it's tonight. I, I, please come back tonight. I want to give you reasons why all of it's like that, some ways that we can help, what's going on, and I'll show you pictures of it. But, man, what an amazing trip. Thank you so much for praying. I, I didn't get sick. I slept well. I, I've got some pictures of some food tonight that you will find very interesting. And so uh, we're going to show some of that tonight. All right. Well, let's go to Zechariah. So remember, we are returning to our study of the book of Zechariah. What has happened in the book of Zechariah is that they have been through 70 years. The Israel, the nation of Israel has been through 70 years of captivity because of their idolatry and their failure to obey God. And the time is up. They've gone back to the land. They started building the walls and they started very well, but they got some opposition from the Samaritans. And so they had stopped building now for 16 years. So the purpose of Haggai, he preaches four sermons and motivates them to start the building again. And he really kind of castigates them for stopping. And then Zechariah is going to encourage them to finish the job. And so now we are in Zechariah chapter one, and uh, let's have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, this is such a significant passage of Scripture, and there's so much to learn from it. Father, I pray now as we shift from thinking about missions and the people that we love who are serving there to your word, Lord, help us to recognize the privilege that we have to be in this place and the comfort that we have, the opportunity that we have. Lord, help us to be thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 1, look at verse 2. The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now do you see the repetition there? It's the Lord of hosts. Remember when you see that phrase, the Lord of hosts, that's God returning with his armies. That's always God with an army, Lord of hosts. That host is a host of armies, and we have looked through that before. But now, look at what it says in verse 4. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying... So the former prophets, Zechariah is a contemporary prophet. He would be the current prophet for them. Former prophets were those who came before, and Zechariah is identifying himself with them. So be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. So 
the prophets had preached to these people's fathers, and they didn't hear. So for 400 years, God had been prophesying to them. Listen, if you don't get this right, judgment is coming. If you don't get this right, judgment is coming. Listen to what I'm saying, judgment is coming, and they wouldn't listen. And so they go into 70 years of captivity. And now God is challenging them again. Your fathers didn't listen. Will you listen? Look at verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. So let's, let's look at this text and try and get an understanding of what's going on and then make an application to ourselves. So uh, Zechariah is speaking to these now who have gone back to Israel after they had been taken to captivity in Babylon. Now, it's hard for us to understand how bad that would have been. So let's begin by looking, keep your place here in Zechariah. And if you don't have a Bible, look under the chair in front of you. There's a Bible there. You're going to need a Bible because we're going to be all over the scriptures today. But look with me at Psalm 137. I have enough for about six hours of teaching. You know, I've been teaching for like eight hours a day down in Argentina. So this could be a really long sermon. I've got to get back in the flow of it. All right, Psalm 137. Familiar passage, um, but it'll help us to understand what the, the God's people were doing in Babylon. So Psalm 137, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy... Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. That's burn it down. Raise it, burn it down. Even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones." So the attitude of the Israelites when they were taken into Babylon, remember, they killed thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them before they drug the best into Babylon. That's what had happened. They had killed their family members. They would killed their children. And in that captivity, God did some amazing things. He raised up men like Daniel. He raised up men like Zechariah and Haggai. He raised up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others who did well during the captivity. But here at the beginning of it, these people are really struggling. And you can see the struggle that they're having. This is The Treasury of David by Charles Spurgeon. And I want to read to you a couple of things that he wrote about this. So his introduction to this psalm, Treasury of David, if you don't have it, I really recommend that you get it. It's Spurgeon's amazing commentary on the psalms. But he said this. This is in his introduction. 
The, this plaintive ode is one of the most charming compositions in the whole book of Psalms for its poetic power. If it were not inspired, it would nevertheless occupy a high place in poetry, especially the former portion of it, which is tender and patriotic to the highest degree. This is interesting. In the later verses, we have utterances of burning indignation against the chief adversaries of Israel, an indignation as righteous as it was fervent. Let those find fault with it who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and their children slain. They might not perhaps be quite so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. It is one thing to talk of the bitter feeling which moved captive Israelites in Babylon, and quite another thing to be captives ourselves under a savage and remorseless power, which knew not how to show mercy, but delighted in barbarities to the defenseless. The song is such as might fitly be sung in the Jews' wailing place. It is a fruit of the captivity in Babylon, and often has it furnished expression for sorrows which else had been unutterable. It is an opalesque psalm within whose mild radiance there glows a fire which strikes the bolder, the beholder, with wonder. It's interesting when you look at this that these people had come and not only were the unbelieving Jews taken into captivity, but the faithful were also taken because the nation itself had turned away from God. And now as they come, they were known for their music. They had their harps. And those who had wasted them, that had destroyed their families, destroyed their nation, dragged them away as slaves, now they want to hear them sing a song. And what they wanted them to do is they wanted them to sing one of the songs of the temple, one of their psalms, one of their holy and spiritual songs. They wanted them to sing that song so that they could mock it, so they could laugh at them. Not only did they want them to sing, but they wanted them to put on a happy face and smile and dance and sing for them as if everything was okay. And in their protest, they said, how can we sing the songs of God in a strange land? And they, they didn't destroy their instruments. They hung them on a willow. And it's so interesting when Spurgeon comments on that. I wish I could read the whole thing to you. It, uh, you could go online. It's free. You can go online and read Spurgeon's Treasury of David. Read what he wrote, his exposition of this psalm. He says this, Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Nothing else could have subdued their brave spirits. Listen to this. But the remembrance of the temple of their God, the palace of their king, and the center of their national life quite broke them down. Destruction had swept down all their delights, and therefore they wept. The strong men wept. The sweet singers wept. They did not weep when they remembered the cruelties of Babylon. The memory of fierce opposition dried their tears and made their hearts burn with wrath. But when the beloved city of their solemnities came into their minds, they could not refrain from floods of tears. Even thus do true believers mourn when they see the church despoiled and find themselves unable to succor her. We could bear anything better than this. In these are times, the Babylon of error ravages the city of God, and the hearts of the faithful are grievously wounded as they see truth fallen in the streets and unbelief rampant among professed servants of the Lord. 
And he goes on to talk about he was involved in what was called the downgrade controversy. He was part of the Baptist Union in England, and liberalism had started to come in. So that's what he begins to reference. But in Babylon, these people came, and they were so upset that their temple had been destroyed, their place of worship had been destroyed. And they said, we're not going to sing the songs of God in a strange land. Now 70 years has passed. More than a million Jews were taken out of Israel and brought into Babylon. Only 30,000 went back. Why? Because they stopped singing the songs of God in a strange land and began singing the songs of the strange land. And they were influenced by the culture. You know, we have heard of the concept of secular humanism, right? You all familiar with secular humanism? The, the old Latin... Uh, classical Latin, had two words to describe the world. One was saculum and the other was mundus. Mundus would be the land itself, where you would stand, to the ground. And, and that's where we get the word mundane. It's just plain and simple. It's just the earth. The, the saculum is where we get the word secular. And saculum had to do with when you live. So mundus and, and saculum, that would be the here and now. So I live here in Sydney and I live now in, in 2021. You believe, doesn't that sound weird when you say that out loud? It's like Buck Rogers or something in 2021. But so the, that's the here and now. And so that's, that's the, where those Latin words come from. Secular, seculum, mundus, mundane. All right. So the, the seculum, it's okay to talk about here and now. And, we'd mini, and we need ministry for here and now, don't we? We need to reach Sydney, Ohio and our surrounding areas. That's important. And they need to be reached now. Amen. Right. Now, when you get the word secularism, that moves it from a concept to a philosophy. And the philosophy of secularism goes back to a man named Protagoras. Now, Protagoras lived, he was a philosopher, one of the early Greek philosophers. He lived 500 years before Christ. And these were thinkers. They're trying to begin um, helping people to have categories of thought. And he is famous for this idea. And he's considered the father of humanism. And he said this, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. In other words, man is the highest of all creatures. There's nothing higher than man. We're it. And so everything in the world must be under us. So now humanism comes out of that, that man is everything. So live your life, go for the gusto, do everything you can, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Man is the measure of all things. Now, if man is the measure of all things, then there is no God, there is no eternity, there is no afterlife, there's no supernatural. So that's the world that we live in now, isn't it? That's, that's where secular humanism comes in. And so this world fills our time with everything. So when you watch people... They are either playing a game or working or looking at a screen. That's it. There's no time for contemplation. There's no time for thought. When do we think about God? When do we interact with the supernatural? That's the world that we live in. And then you have the scientists and philosophers of today who say that there really is nothing but man. There's nothing else but what we have right now. So now the nation of Israel, back in Zechariah's day, you had these people that said, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? 
But now they have become so accustomed to that strange land that it's no longer strange. They're comfortable with it now. They want to stay there. So what happens with secularism is it starts to meld with God's people and people make bargains with the world, which always compromises God's holiness, God's purity, and God's plan for His people. Always. So there are two ways that this secularism of Babylon infected the people. So they stayed. They didn't go back. Those that did go back, now you have a group of people called the Samaritans that are fighting against them. The the Samaritans are people, they're Jews that had stayed in the land and they, they married, intermarried with the Canaanites and now they're their own race and they become the enemies of the people of God. And they start fighting against Israel as they try to build the walls and start working. Comfort, ease, and paganism influenced Israel and Babylon. Opposition from religious forces, national forces, and governmental forces stopped the people from working back in Israel, back in God's land. Secularism, this world system, can affect us in so many different ways. Whether we get wrapped up in entertainment, whether we get wrapped up in sports, whether we get wrapped up in money, whether we get wrapped up in, in other areas of the culture, music, whatever, all of those things can be good. But when they get in the way of doing God's work, now we have been overcome by the culture and we're no longer influencing the culture. It's interesting. People want to build bridges to the culture. They want to do things to be able to reach the world The only problem with bridges is they allow traffic both ways. No such thing as a one-way bridge. If I am allowed to get into that culture, if I build a bridge of understanding with that culture, that culture is also going to come and begin influencing me. So the influencers become the influencees, and now we become like the world. So what do we do? We go in the world, but we're not of the world. We recognize that we have here no continuing city. We don't bow before any city. We have a city whose builder and maker is God. We, don't, we are not a part of this world. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be pilgrims. We're citizens of a new city that is yet to come. We live in this world as believers. We're not like the world. We're supposed to be different from the world. But it's interesting. Truth always brings controversy. And in our culture, the one thing that's not allowed is controversy. What we want is we want a crowd mentality. This is what all the cool kids are doing. And, of course, you remember what your mom said. Well, if they jumped off a cliff, would you jump off too? Right? You remember that? So your preacher right now. Well, if they jump off a cliff, will you jump off too? We don't have to follow the crowd. We're supposed to be different than the world. And God's people... We're supposed to be a peculiar people, not like Babylon, not like the Samaritans. They're supposed to be that shining city on a hill that everyone else can see. They're supposed to be the light of the world. They're supposed to be salt in the world, convicting and preserving and seasoning the world to make the world like God, not becoming like the world. And yet that secularism had influenced them so much. And now Zechariah comes and says, be not as your fathers. You know the old song, give me that old time religion. 
It was good enough for mom. It was good enough for dad. Give me that old-time religion. Right? You know what I hope our children can say? I want to be like my dad. My father honored the Lord. My My father listened to God's word. Wouldn't that be a great heritage to leave? You know what I'm thankful, young people, is that you can look around these men. You can look to your fathers who are serving God. You can look to your fathers who are listening to God's word and doing right. Let's keep going, guys. Let's not stop the text. Be not as your fathers. So they've gone from the rivers of Babylon and weeping to not wanting to leave. And then those that go back are confronted by the Samaritans. And now for 16 years, God's work has stopped. And Zechariah is challenging them. But look at the message that he gives to them. Go back to Zechariah, if you will. He asks this question in verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded... My servants, the prophets, did they not take hold? So what God is saying here is the fathers are dead, the prophets are dead, but God's word still stands. That's what he's saying here. Alexander McLaren, the preacher, he was a contemporary of Spurgeon in England. I I read one of his sermons last night. His sermon was called Dying Men and the Living Word. Dying Men and the Living Word. See, everything around us is going to pass away. What then? What then? So... He says, but my words and my statutes. So get your Bibles. Let's just run some verses and try and get the teaching that Zechariah is giving. Keep your marker here and go with me to 1 Peter 1. What does the Bible say about itself? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth, how long? Forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth, how long? Forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. It lasts forever. Look at Psalm 12. It's hard to get used to you guys down here with electronics instead of the Bible. I thought, oh, you playing video games down there? What are you doing? Okay. No, they're reading the Bible. Don't worry. They've got their Bibles. Psalm 12. Look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation. How long? Forever. Now, of course, if you have a modern translation of the Bible, this is one of the best passages on the preservation of the word. So they take that out and they say that it's preserving God's people. When the text isn't talking about God's people, it's talking about God's going to use God's people to preserve His words, right? So, 
It says, my words and my statutes in Zechariah, they're going to last and stand forever. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Let's see what Jesus said about it. Matthew 24, look at verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So the thing about secularism, the thing about culture's influence is that culture is guaranteed to change. Amen? How many of you remember platform shoes? Remember those? They're probably back. I don't know. But, man, I used to sell shoes when I was in high school. And, man, these people would put on these shoes. They're like this tall. It was hilarious. They were so stupid. But they were popular, and people wanted to make sure that they had them. But you couldn't have those shoes without the bell bottoms, right? And the afro. Where's Jeff Blackford? If you've never seen Jeff's Afro, you've got to get a picture. You've got to see that picture. So that's okay. But, man, the culture today, people pierce and mark their bodies, and, you know, that's in style now. But you're stuck with that for the rest of your life, right? It's interesting how the culture changes, the styles change, and, the, you know, then you have to buy them. So the ties, they, they were, you know, real narrow, and then they got out to, you know, look like a bib. <laughs> and then they started getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And, you know, ties are probably from Satan anyway. Someone said that uh, wearing a tie is like being strangled by a weak man slowly. <laughs> right? But we wear them because that's, the, that's the, our culture. And so now it, it all changes. It doesn't matter what your culture is doesn't matter who's in charge. So right now we have President Trump and we have people trying to attack him. Then they'll have the next president and then they'll be fighting. And whoever's in charge, the laws change and the influences happen. Governments come and go. Rulers come and go. Styles come and go. God's word never changes. The problem is when the culture gets between you and God. When the culture starts influencing your worship when the culture starts influencing whether or not you receive the Scriptures. You see, the Word of God stands forever. Everything else changes. The ideas of man will change. The great influencers will change. But God's Word never changes. That's the touchstone. That's the marker. That's the objective truth and the objective reality that we have to, to test everything else by. But we can't do that if we're too filled with the culture. So back to Zechariah, look at what it says. Verse 6, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets. It says, um, Did they not take hold of your fathers? So everything else has gone. His word has stood. But look at that phrase right there. Did they not take hold of your fathers? So he's not saying the prophets took hold. The prophets preached, the people ignored the prophets, and God's word took hold of them. Do you see that's what's being said? Uh, look at, keep your place there, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 
Sorry, it's 1 Thessalonians 2.13. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the what? The word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So God's word is powerful, but it becomes effective in your life when you believe it. Do you see that's what that's saying? It's true whether you believe it or not. Uh, let me show you that that's what the Bible says. Look at Romans chapter 3. So Romans 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about the Jews and Israel. So Romans 3, look at verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? So circumcision it was a religious ceremony that identified the Jews. It was part of their culture. Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So why are the Jews better? He said every way, but especially because God gave the Bible to them. So how many of you have a Bible? Any of you have a Bible? Well, that came through the Jews, right? So sometimes you have Christian groups that are anti-Semitic. They're against the Jews. Well, that's stupid, right? They're God's people. God, we have the Bible because of them. Thank God for the Jews. Amen. And then God said, of course, in Genesis 12, 3, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. I'd rather be on the blessing side of that, okay? Call me kooky. All right, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Did their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? No. Right? I, I, one of the commentators that I read, he said, you can go up to the Empire State Building and jump off not believing in gravity, but they'll be scooping you up with a spoon. <laughs> isn't that a good picture? Scooping up with a spoon. That's gross, isn't it? And so your belief in the truth or your rejection of the truth says nothing about the truth. Is that right? And so the, the truth was preached by the prophets to the Jews' fathers, to these Israelites' fathers. Their fathers rejected the truth, but the Bible says that the word of God took hold on them. So there are two things that we can do with the word of God. We can take hold on it and receive it. And it becomes effectual. We believe it. And then that power is working in us and through us and for us. The Bible says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then that becomes powerful in us. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The Bible says in Matthew or in John 6.63, The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. But we understand them how? By comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Taking that scripture and understanding and allowing that Bible to get in us. It lives forever. The culture changes. I understand the culture through the Bible. I don't read the Bible through my culture. The Bible doesn't change. So you can do two things with the Bible. You can take hold of it or you can wait for the Bible to take hold of you. And let me tell you something. You do not want that to happen. Let's look at that for a second. What does that mean for the Bible to take hold of the fathers? We need to understand that the Bible, according to the Scriptures, is a living thing. 
So look at Hebrews chapter 4. Now you have to listen fast. I've got to hurry right here. All right. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Turn fast for me. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is quick. That means it's alive. You know, it's like there's two kinds of people that cross the road. The quick and the dead. Right? The alive and the dead. Louis L'Amour books, there are two kinds of people with guns. The quick and the dead. Right? All right. So, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Now, notice this, though. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the Word of God. It's not an inanimate object. It's alive. The Word of God is a discerner of your thoughts and intents. So I don't judge the Bible by my thoughts and intents. The Bible judges my thoughts and intents. It's really important. The Bible is alive. Look at Psalm 147. This is interesting. Psalm 147. Look at verse 15. Psalm 147, verse 15. He sendeth forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. Now, in literature, you might call that an anthropomorphism, giving uh, uh, attributes, either either, uh, human attributes or the attributes of God to an inanimate object. That's not what's happening here. The Word of God really does. The Bible says that His Word searches the earth to and fro. The Bible says His Word will not return unto Him again void. The, the, the Bible is alive. It's a real thing. It's an amazing thing. And, of course, we understand the Word incarnate is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Bible talks about the voice of God coming to walk with Adam in the cool of the day. That's the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ. So we have the the Word of God, His words, they are alive. Jesus Christ Himself is alive forevermore. And Jesus said something about His Word. All right, so we see that it's, that it's alive. Oh, I wanted to show you this about the word taking hold. Let me show you how that idea of taking hold is used in the Bible. When something is taking hold of you, it's always negative. It's always bad. So go to Exodus chapter 15. Isn't this more fun than 12 steps on how to stop biting your fingernails? You know, whatever. <laughs> Stuff that people go over in church. All right, Exodus chapter 15, look at verse 14. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Okay, now look at verse 15. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab trembling shall take hold on them. See that? Trembling shall take hold on them. On them. Look at Job chapter 27. Take hold is always something negative. And I can show you a bunch of these, but for time's sake, we'll just do a couple of them. James Knox had this list in his commentary. Job 27. 
verse 20. Terrors take hold on him as waters. A tempest stealeth him away in the night. Terrors take hold on him. So the Bible says that the, the prophets preached to their fathers and that word took hold on them. So let's try and find out what that means when the word of God takes hold. So remember, you can do two things with the word of God. You can receive it or you can reject it. You can take hold on it or wait for it to take hold on you. All right. Let's look at whether or not they received it. Go to the book of Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah 22 and verse 21. Boy, this would be a message that we in the United States ought to hear. Okay, verse 21. I spake unto thee in thy prosperity. Boy, do we have any prosperity? Now, again, this is addressed to Israel. It's not addressed to us. But I think that it would be good for us to pay attention and you know what people say, I'm not prosperous. Well, go back, go to Argentina where I just was. Where the average household income is $6,000 a year. A year. Right? Are we prosperous? Amen. All right, so look at what it says. I spake unto thee in thy prosperity, but thou saidest, I will not hear. This hath been thy manner from thy youth, that thou obeyest not my voice. That's a really dangerous place to be. Now, remember what happened. Go back to Zechariah. Let's see if there's anything like that in our context. All right. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 4. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways... And from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. So they wouldn't physically listen to it. And when they did hear it, they wouldn't do it. Hearken is to listen with understanding, to receive it. We use it this way when we're talking to our kids. Are you listening to me? And they're thinking, how could I not? You're screaming. No, no, no we're not asking if you can audibly hear the sounds coming out of our voices. Is it getting through your thick skull? Now, I know that none of your parents ever said anything that unkind to you because maybe your skull wasn't as thick as mine as when I was young. But that's the idea. That's that concept. Okay, so remember two things you can do with the Word of God. You can take hold on it or it can take hold on you. Let's see what happens when the Word of God takes hold on you. Go to the book of John. John chapter 12. Such an important lesson for us to get today. John chapter 12, look at verse 47. Um, why, don't we, why don't we start on verse 44? Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but in him, on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If any man hear, look at, if any man hear my what? And believe not, I judge him not. 
For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. For I have not... Or look, look, look at what it says. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not... What does it say? Hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That's the word taking hold on you. The word of God is what is going to judge people. Remember, it's the standard. That's the standard. Look at John chapter 5. To the Jews specifically, he said this, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his, what's it say? How shall ye believe my words? It's interesting, when judgment comes, there is something that is going to judge them, and it's the Word of God. It says it all through the Scriptures. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 that the Word of God is quick. It's alive. And it's coming after you. Can you look at, with me at Revelation chapter 20? I want you to see something. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. That's Jesus Christ. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, the, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the book of life, every individual that's ever lived, his name's written in the book of life. And then when you don't receive God's words... Your name's blotted out of the book of life. See, the grace of God is that God wants everyone to be saved. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You start from a position of opportunity. See, anyone that goes to hell has to deliberately step over the word of God to get there. But look at what it says in verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. What are the books that are opened? The books of the Bible. And men are judged out of those things that are in the books. And your, whether or not you're in the book of life is based on what you do with this. Because the Bible says that the gospel that we have received and wherein we stand is that Christ died for our sins and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day. Finish it for me. According to the Scriptures. 
See, there's one thing that judges us. It's the Word of God. We don't judge the Bible. The Bible judges us. Go back to Zechariah. Verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? So this promised judgment, it happened. And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. So let me finish it up with this. What the Bible says about you is true. The Bible describes man's condition. One of the things, one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the Word of God is that it is the most accurate descriptor of the human condition ever written. It describes us so well. Everything it says about you is true. And the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. So God's Word is true. And you can either take hold on it or it can take hold on you. How many dads do we have here? Your dad. Wouldn't it be good if God could say of us to our children, be like your father's? Because your fathers took hold on the Word of God. Look at Second Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse... 11, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Verse 13, Hold fast the form of of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. So what are we going to do with this? How, how can we apply this? What are we supposed to do? Well, how about we do this? Turn from your evil ways and from your evil doings. The ways would be a reference to the course or pattern of your behavior. The doings would be the individual actions which spring from those. And so what does the Bible tell us to do? Repent. So that's what God wanted the children of Israel to do and that's what God wants us to do. So let's go back all the way to the beginning. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach it all again. Let's just go back to the beginning and remember about secularism. Right? The here and the now, but then man being the measure of all things. Now, how many of you believe in God? You believe in a supernatural, right? How many of you believe in an eternity? The problem is we have to focus on those things on purpose. Is that fair? Because we're so wrapped up in the mundane. We're so wrapped up in the schedule. We're very much wrapped up in the here and now. We're also very much influenced by the spirit of the age, that secularism that wants to say, man, you're giving too much to the Lord. You're spending too much time serving God. Why do you go to church so much? Why do you read the Bible so much? Well, we read the Bible so much because the Bible says that we're supposed to hide it in our hearts so that we won't sin against God. It's the power that we have, right? So we understand that. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to repent of our submission to the world. And we've got to say, God, I've got, to, I've got to find more time in my schedule to be with you. 
I've got to find more time in my schedule to be with God's people. This behavior, it doesn't fit with the Bible. I've got to cut it out. I need to repent of that. So this is, this is it, and I'm done. The answer to secular humanism is worship. Right? So if secular humanism says man's the measure of all things, worship says there's something so far transcending man that there's no comparison between the two. Remember, the, the transcendence of our worship is in direct proportion to the knowledge and depth of the, our, the depth and knowledge of our understanding of God. Right? So the transcendence of my worship is based on how much I know God. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So if I, the, the transcendence of worship, that's the answer to the influence of secular humanism in my life. Right? How do I live out that worship? The practical application of worship is discipleship. You see, my worship begins with acknowledging who God who I is and who I am. And then what does God want me to do? He wants me to be a disciple and make disciples. And do you know what discipleship costs you? Everything. Everything. Forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what God wants from us. He wants everything. If you're a maintenance man, God wants you to be a Christian maintenance man. Right? If you're an engineer, God wants you to be a Christian engineer. If you're a mother, God wants you to be a godly mother. You see, everything we do needs to be under the authority of God. That can't happen unless we worship. And we can't live out our worship unless we're in God's plan, which is discipleship. Amen? Here at Grace Baptist, we have a ministry. We call it, coincidentally, discipleship. You need to be discipled. You need to give the time to have someone disciple you. And us disciplers, we need to make sure that we're giving our lives to it to train other people in the Word of God. That's the heartbeat of it. The Bible says, be not as your fathers. Young people, I'll say it again. I'm glad that you can be like your dads. Amen? I'm glad that there are people that have come before us that have set a model of what a godly life is supposed to look like. We're not inventing this thing. It's not new. I said I was going to be done on that one. I lied. I'll be done on this one. Um, one of the commentators, I think it was McLaren in that sermon on dying men and the, the living word or the undying word. He said that when Zechariah prophesied, you know, he talked about the former prophets. Zechariah was actually prophesying something new. It was a new message from God. We don't do that. Our message is 2,000 years old. And you know what the good news is? We're not making any of it up. We've watched God's word in people's lives for 2,000 years what it does when you accept it, what it does when you reject it. What it does when you accept it, what it does when it, you reject it. We've seen how biblical ministry is to be done. We don't acquiesce to the culture. We confront the culture with the Word of God. That's who we're supposed to be. Amen? Be not as your fathers. I hope at Grace Baptist Church that God could say 
to the people who come after us if the Lord doesn't return, I hope he could say, be like your fathers. They were an example. Can we be that example? How many of you want to be that example? Amen. Let's all stand together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I say that every time I preach, but today it seems even more appropriate.